0: 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God."
1: Our focus this morning is on verses 20 and 21, the end of this paragraph that we've been on for several weeks now. And there's a close connection between these two verses, 20 and 21, and what went before. I want to point out one of those as we begin and then close by pointing out another one and try to draw the the whole paragraph together. Verses 20 and 21 are a continuation of the sentence that began in verse 17. 17, 18, and 19. And what we saw last week was that there's there's one central commandment in those verses. It's the third in the series of commandments that we've seen. Verse 13, the commandment to be hopeful, and then the commandment to be holy, and then the commandment in verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your sojourn on the earth. And then we saw that in verses 18 and 19, a very strange Reason was given for why you should conduct yourself in fear throughout your time on the earth. And the reason was given something like, because you've been ransomed from a futile way of life by an infinitely valuable price, namely the blood of Jesus. And then I asked you rhetorically, does that make sense? Fear because you've been ransomed with such a valuable price. And I tried to explain, as we closed, that I think the way Peter is thinking, something like this. It's a fearful thing to treat with contempt a ransom that has been paid to rescue you from sin. By staying in the sin and using the ransom to pay for it. Let me give you an illustration. Um, You're a father. You have a daughter. She's kidnapped by vicious criminals. They demand a huge ransom. You sell everything you have. You liquidate every asset. You sell your house and your cars and your land. You sell your wife's wedding ring. And you put everything in the bag and you take it to the appointed place and you put it down and you back off in hope and trembling She comes out from hiding, according to the agreement, picks up the bag, takes it back. And as she returns to the kidnapper, she puts her arm around one of them, looks over her shoulder and says, sucker. Sucker. And everything in our heart says, that's a fearful thing to do. To take a love ransom And use it to fund the very thing which it was paid to free you from is fearful. And there are many in the church who try to do it. Peter was so keenly aware of it. He's warning us in these verses, fear bringing contempt upon the blood which was paid to free you from sin. Now, I hope that makes sense. Now, verses 20 and 21 up the ante. Because what they do, they're simply a continuation of this sentence. Verse 19 ends with the word Christ in the Greek and in the NASB, not in the NIV, not in the RSV. But I think in any version you can see the flow of thought here. Verses 20 and 21 are simply continuing the flow of thought by describing about six things about Jesus, about Christ. And so the point is this. There's not a new thought here. Don't let the period at the end of that sentence, which isn't a period in the Greek, deceive you. The thought continues and the thought is conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile Because you've been ransomed by an infinitely valuable ransom, namely the blood of Christ, who, and then six things about Christ. So the point is, with every one of those six things, the value and importance and preciousness and beauty of Christ goes a bit higher. And two things happen when that happens. Number one, your hope rises. If Christ is greater and greater and greater and greater, then the ransom He paid is more and more and more sufficient to rescue you, and your hope can rise. But, so does fearfulness of bringing contempt upon that ransom, because the more and more and more valuable Christ is, the more fearful becomes the sucker out of the mouth of the daughter. Does that make sense? we together? The command to lead your life in fear rises with the value of the ransom paid to rescue you from the sin that some people try to fund with the ransom. It's a fearful thing. So what I want to do this morning, and I think I'm simply echoing the logic of the text, is Glorify Jesus. I think that's what verses 20 and 21 want to do. They want to lift up Christ with six things about him and thus highlight your hope this Christmas and the sober fearfulness of treating that ransom with content. Number one, verse 20 says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, this Christ who came was not an afterthought of creation that got all messed up. And God says, oh my, what will I do with my fallen creation? No way. There are a lot of people today that are trying to teach us. Beware of this. Evangelicals are trying to teach us God doesn't know the future because they are scared of the sovereign implications that that has for his rule over the future. Christ was known from all eternity. The plan was known from all eternity. And your redemption from the futile way inherited from your fathers was known from all eternity. And the point is this. When you're tempted to sin this afternoon... Let your mind, among all the other things that your mind can do, rest on this. The one who paid my ransom was known by God and loved by God and united with God from all eternity. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's who paid the ransom. I could never bring contempt upon that ransom. Paid by an eternally glorious being who loved me. Number two. The verse goes on and says in the middle of verse 20. That Christ has appeared in these last times. So he was known, loved, chosen before the world, the universe. And he was invisible. And then the world and the universe were created and he remained invisible, though he was active. And then the fullness of time, the end of the times, as it's called here, the beginning of the messianic time, the time of the Messiah. The end came and this son of God, eternally equal with the father and pre-existent, clothes himself with flesh and blood and appears and says, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And dies. Why? To rescue you from a futile way of life inherited from your fathers. He could not have shed his blood in ransom had he not appeared in flesh and blood. He was born to die and he died to rescue you from this afternoon's sinning. And tomorrow's. And Friday's. As well as all the ones in the past. Number three. At the end of verse 20. It says that the reason Christ appeared was for the sake of you. So he makes it explicit. I've been saying it all along, but but let me just drive it with these words. We are talking here about an eternally glorious, holy, righteous, infinite God who has always existed, will always exist, and His Son, who is equal with Him, conspiring in the untraceable distances of eternity to redeem you and sending the second person of the Trinity into the universe clothed with humanity? Why? Why this unbelievably spectacular? Plan of redemption, us. I mean, it just blows your socks off. Us. I mean, just picture little, utterly insignificant you. I mean, picture those pictures coming back from the moon about the Earth. You see it? You see the big blue part, and you see the part that looks like the United States. Can you see yourself? You're nothing. Zero. Imagine what you must look like to God, who sees all the galaxies and has got to find you somewhere on planet Earth. And he tells us in this verse, it's all for you. I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And if anything should cause us to take our behavior seriously, It's that the whole eternity and universe and plan of God is designed to rescue you from this afternoon's sinning. I mean, do you think behavior is important to God? Conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile because a ransom has been paid to redeem you from a futile way of Life Is that important? Is living important? I've just been overwhelmed in the last few hours by the importance of living as a human being. The significance of living as a human being when all of eternity has been focused on you, that you might live free from futility and sin. Just boggles the mind. Let your heart rise. Let your heart rise into this significance. Number four. Peter says that God now raised him from the dead. Now what's the, what's the function of that in your fight against sin this afternoon? I think the resurrection of Jesus does two things. One, it vindicates the value of the ransom. When God looked down on the bloodshedding of his son, which he himself ordained and caused, and he looked at it, and Jesus said, it is finished. The father said, it is finished. And he raised him from the dead to say to all the world, it was finished. It is all satisfying and all valuable and all sufficient. No more needs to be paid. Once for all, it is done. I think that's what the resurrection is like. A big exclamation point at the end of Christ's blood is enough. Boom! Exclamation point up out of the grave. And the second thing it does is say death is defeated. Death is defeated. So that this afternoon when sin comes to you and this is the way he comes and he says, mm, you know, life is short, and my pleasures are large, and then you die, maximize. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. To which, you now, after this morning's message, will say, and the day after that, I will live again forever. And therefore, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're telling me that this life is all I've got and I should follow you because you can maximize it for me. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to rise from the dead with Jesus. And then I live 10 million, million ages of ages. And if I were to choose your way now and go to hell rather than Jesus way and go to heaven, I would be an absolute fool out of here, sin. That's the way you argue with sin. It's the only way you can defeat sin. Righteousness is not automatic, folks. It is won by warfare with truth from the Bible. Number five. Verse 21. God not only raised him from the dead, God gave him glory. God gave him glory. Now, what's the point of that? The point of that is to say that when He raised Him from the dead, He didn't leave Him like an ordinary man to suffer and die again. Great! We've we got a living Jesus who's going to die again. Big deal. Instead, after 40 days of giving many infallible proofs, He is raised to the right hand of the Father and given all the glory that He had with the Father before the worlds were made and installed as the Lord of the universe, as the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the effect of that on my fight against the futile way this afternoon is this. If Jesus lived the way he lived, suffering, love, lowliness, kindness, gentleness, truthfulness, unwavering righteousness, if Jesus lived that way... And he was glorified as the Lord of the universe. Well, I'm gonna go his way. And you say that to sin when sin says, look, man, don't deny yourself this simple pleasure. God created it. Say, look, when I watch Jesus, he denied himself. When I watch Jesus, he sacrificed. When I watch Jesus, he loved. When I watched Jesus, he was faithful to his commitments. When I watched Jesus, he endured suffering and he was glorified. I'm going his way because I want glory. And the second effect it has, you use this as your next weapon in the arsenal against sin, is if he's glorified and if he loved me enough to pay a ransom of his own infinitely valuable shed blood, then He's got all the power and all the wisdom and all the love and all the glory and everything in heaven that it takes to help me make it to glory. And so when God says, I glorified him, he's helping me not walk in the futile ways inherited from my father. Number six, finally. At the beginning of verse 21, I skipped over it intentionally because it it's a good climax Peter says that through him, through Christ, you are believers in God. I'll just picture that phrase through whom, through Christ, you are believers in God. That means that if you are a believer today in God, if you trust in God and hope in God, it's because of Jesus. Jesus has done everything necessary. He was loved and foreknown and chosen. He appeared at the end of the times. He was crucified for sins. He was raised from the dead. He was glorified at the Father's right hand. And now he is sent by his spirit into this world and he is doing his purposes to gather his people. And through him, you have become believers in God. At the end of verse 21, the aim of all of this is stated very clearly. And this now is our link back to verse 13. So that your faith and hope are in God. God is saying, I have done everything from eternity past In the foreknowing of my Son, to eternity future, in the glorifying of my Son, that you might hope in me, God. That's what he's saying. God's done everything so that you might not hope in what sin can offer you, but hope in what God can offer you. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Therefore, he who hopes in sin dies and he who hopes in god lives forever everything has been done for you that you might escape from the futile way of sin and put your hope in god forever the paragraph begins verse 13 Fix your hope fully on the grace being brought to you. Hope in God. The paragraph ends by God saying, I've done it all that you might hope. It begins with the command to hope. It ends by showing us that everything in between has been done for the sake of hope, even fear. You can handle that, can't you? The reason he commands fear is to drive you again and again to this precious ransom to drive you again and again to the fountain of living water, away from the broken cistern of sin that holds no water and cannot save. Fear is a precious gift, just like pain. Pain is the most precious gift because if you didn't have it, you'd all lose your hands. You'd burn yourself. You'd break bones. You wouldn't know what to do if you didn't have pain. And without fear in the Christian life, we go headlong into mindless sinning. And one of the reasons there is so much sinning is because there's so little fear. I close by calling you with a Christmas call to wake up to the folly of hoping in sin. And to stop trying to satisfy your hearts with and to start satisfying your hearts with God. Perhaps the best word to close with would be an invitation from Revelation 22. The Spirit and the bride, the Spirit and the church say, come. Let everyone who is thirsty come. Whosoever will, let him come and drink of the fountain of life without price. Let's pray. Oh, Father in Heaven, I pray for appropriate measures of fear. I pray for awesome measures of hope. I pray that our confidence would be in You and Your way as the All satisfying one. And I pray that because of your speaking this morning, the back of sin would be broken in our lives. And that we would walk free in light this Christmas. In Jesus name I pray. And all the people said, Amen.